You are entering the Freedom Hut. Tensions heating up in the Middle East. Is Saudi Arabia going to go to war with Iran? Are we going to get involved and perhaps start a war with Iran? We're going to that. Plus, the libs are doubling down even further on the Kavanaugh allegations that have already been proven to be baseless. We'll get into that. Plus, what some of the Democrat candidates are offering up in terms of socialism, expanding government. We got Dr. Jonathan Shanzer joining to talk national security and the Israeli elections. Lots of stuff coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. This attack on the oil refinery, by any reasonable definition, is an act of war. It is attacking the world economy. It's the stability of the oil markets throughout the world. I am looking for a response that would be unequivocal. If they don't pay a price for bombing a neighbor's oil fields, then all hell is going to break out in the Mideast. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. As you can hear there from Senator Lindsey Graham, there's definitely... Major concerns over what is going on in the Middle East right now. So here's here's what we know. Let's start with what we know. Uh, It was a devastating sneak attack on Saudi Arabia's most important asset. On Saturday, there was this fusillade of explosive drones and cruise missiles that slammed into the, the heart of Saudi oil production. I mean, this was a surgically precise military operation you had 19 projectiles launched 17 hits on critical oil infrastructure in fact the saudi facility at uh abakik is the single biggest crude oil stabilization plant in the world and kurais oil field is the second biggest so as a result of this one Attack Saudi production dropped about 50 percent. That's about five point seven million dollars, a million barrels of crude oil coming offline all at one time, all in one day. You had this double digit jump in global oil prices as a result, which got everybody's attention. So who was responsible for this very clear act of war? Well, you know, there was an immediate claim of responsibility from the Houthi rebels Houthis who have been fighting this vicious civil war right next door to Saudi Arabia in Yemen. And they've launched hundreds of these small scale drone attacks at Saudi Arabia, which has been in charge of this at the head of this coalition to defeat the Houthi rebels since 2015. And they have been pretty brutal in their efforts to suppress the Houthis. But you see, none of the Houthi strikes in the past on the Saudis were anywhere near this scale or sophistication. This was a tactical proficiency far beyond what had been seen previously from the Houthi militia in Yemen. And, you know, and here we are, we're a few days after sifting through missile and drone parts, and you've got all these different experts and intelligence agencies looking at the satellite imagery to make sure they're certain of the culprit because this could lead to war. And right now it is believed. In fact, the Saudis have said that they are effectively without doubt that the Iranians were behind this. 
And then it's just a question of what the additional details are. The claim from the Houthis, the Houthis trying to take responsibility, that's really a fig leaf meant to create hesitation among the Saudis and among and for us. Striking back militarily against the Iranians. Uh, But look, this all makes some sense from the perspective of the Iranians are cornered after Trump pulled out of the Obama administration's joint comprehensive plan of action, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal is how we think of it. That hit the brakes on the Iranian economy real fast. Yeah, sure, the European Union hasn't reimposed sanctions, but... You know, oil exports are down tremendously. Foreign investments down tremendously. Iranian GDP shrunk almost four percent last year, and might sh- they think it'll shrink about six percent next year if the current trends continue. So the mullahs are cornered. Iran's heading for a grueling recession, but they still haven't blinked. Not on their nuclear program, not on negotiations. In fact, Supreme Leader Ayatollah. Ali Khamenei has said there will be no negotiation with the United States to change this. Instead, it looks like he's certain the Iranians are striking at the heart of Saudi oil production uh, production to goad Trump, right? They're trying to send a signal to the rest of the world that uh, when cornered, the Iranian viper still has fangs. So let's assume the Iranians were behind this. What does the United States do? Do we really want to get in the middle of this? Let's hope not. The backdrop for this Saudi uh, strike, this sneak attack, which is clearly an act of war, is the regional Sunni-Shia proxy war with the Iranians that has been escalating in recent years. Some would say it's been escalating for over a millennium, and it could easily set the entire Middle East aflame. All it takes is a miscalculation on one side or the other. I think President Trump, I hope President Trump recognizes these risks. His supporters were promised a non-interventionist foreign policy, the 2020 election looms, doing the Saudis fighting for them is not putting American interests first. It's not putting America first. Could the Saudis set off a regional war on their own by striking back at Iran? It's certainly possible. Could oil spike over $100 a barrel? Who knows? These are dangerous times, my friend. Thoughts and prayers for President Trump, for our armed forces. Let's hope we can navigate out of this without getting ourselves in even deeper. We've got more coming up. And you've introduced a bill along with uh, Senator Cory Booker, obviously, who's uh, who's running for the White House. You did this today. It would create a pilot program to guarantee jobs for anyone who wants one. That's ambitious. Um, it would cost a lot of money. What is the, the number one thing you would do to pay for that? Yeah, I mean, this is an idea that has a, a, a long legacy. It was proposed by uh, Franklin Roosevelt. It was supported by um, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, it's going to allow, it's a pilot project, um, the pilot program that is going to allow 15 communities within um, this country to uh, create this program. And I think ultimately um, when these jobs are created and people are placed in these jobs, uh, it will pay for itself. Ah, there we go. This has become the new super big government Democrat go-to talking point. It will pay for itself. Wow, that sounds good. How are you going to pay for a a plan to to guarantee everybody, the, the government to guarantee everyone a job? Oh, don't worry about it. It'll pay for itself. Huh. 
how will you guarantee health care for everyone? Uh, well, how will you guarantee Medicare for all for everyone? Well, it'll pay for itself with the savings we'll get. I've heard people say this. Democrats have said this, too, with the savings that you'll get on your health care. And when you cut out the insurance companies, this will pay for itself. No serious person can believe that. There is no way this will pay for itself. That's just fantasy land stuff. Bernie Sanders today rolled out a $2.5 trillion housing for all plan. Sanders has said that the plan would guarantee every American, quote, regardless of income, a fundamental right to a safe, decent, accessible and affordable home and would be paid for by a wealth tax on the top one tenth of one percent of income earners. He said there is virtually no place in America where a full time minimum wage worker can afford a decent two bedroom apartment. All right, I'm going to stop there. Uh, I live in New York City. I've never been able to afford a decent two bedroom apartment here. Okay, I, I, I'm like I feel like I'm big time because recently I mean I'm like pushing forty and I moved into one bedroom territory. It used to all be in one room, everything, bathroom pretty much was the kitchen, kitchen was the bed. Bed was the bathroom. Welcome to New York. Took a steak in the toilet. Hey, whatever you got to do. You got to get it done. It's New York. It's NYC. It's the Big Apple. It's the big show. But minimum wage worker, two-bedroom apartment. Who said that one minimum wage worker should be able to, to afford a two-bedroom apartment in a city? What's wrong with the studio? I lived in studios all through my 20s. Studio apartment, 400 square feet usually. A bed, a dresser a place to shower, and maybe like a, a hot plate. I, so I just, like Bernie starts from this place, of, what, what are you even talking about? The average two-bedroom apartment in New York City is probably about four, four, $4,500 a month, four grand, I'd say. The average apartment in Manhattan is over $3,000 a month. Now, I know the other boroughs, it's different. It gets You can get better deals there. But Manhattan's a big place. It's one of the five boroughs. Guarantee everybody a two-bedroom apartment on a minimum wage job? Okay, well, not that many people. The, the, the point of a minimum wage job is generally not to have a minimum wage job forever. Usually, if you do a good job at your minimum wage job, you can move up. You can get into a more senior role. You can get into management. And also, a lot of people are in two-income households. So now if you have two minimum wage jobs in the same household, people can do better and they can start to save some money and they can start to build their way into the middle class. But just think of the central planning on display here. Yeah, we're going to we're going to mandate that, you know, everybody what should be able to afford a two bedroom apartment on a minimum wage salary. I mean, do you want to start paying forty dollars for cheeseburgers at McDonald's? Because, I mean, maybe then it could happen. The free market, or rather just the market sets prices. Bernie Sanders can tell you all day about how much the government should be setting prices, but the government cannot set prices. All it does is push capital into other areas through its intrusions and mandates in the marketplace. But it doesn't work the way they want it to work. And I can even talk to you about the minimum wage. Minimum wage, when they raise it, um, some people benefit from it. Some people don't. And I'm talking about minimum wage earners because there is an actual value to the labor provided by somebody who's earning minimum wage. And businesses have to balance their uh, balance their costs and balance their their input, their output. And so you can say, well, we're going to pay everyone $20 minimum wage. Now what they just do is they cut back your hours or they cut back jobs. 
Some people might be able to uh, to stay around with that $20 minimum wage increase, but other people are going to lose their jobs or they're going to have their hours cut. The minimum wage increase doesn't benefit people the way we're always told it does, but it's an emotional issue. People feel like you should, you work, you show up, you work, you should get paid fairly. Meanwhile, I feel like I did free work for years as an intern at all these different places, building a resume, which really is exploitative. I'm just going to say it. But people say, well, do you want that stuff in your resume or not? I did all all kinds of free work. I was running around making copies. His book, making copies. Uh, I did all kinds of stuff. One more thing before we're, we're going to get a little more into the uh, the latest with the Kavanaugh situation, which they haven't given up. Libs haven't given up. They've they've lost this battle, but they keep fighting. They're just hoping to wear us down. You know, they're wrong, but they don't really care. Saturday, I saw something today that uh, the D- Department of Justice might be circulating. I, I haven't seen this confirmed yet. It might have been confirmed since I read it. Department of Justice is circulating what it thinks might be a what Attorney General Barr and others think might be a possible compromise on a gun control measure. Um, after all the public outcry, after all these shootings. And President Trump is assuring us this is something we should not have to worry about. And left wing Democrats want to confiscate your guns and eliminate your God given right to self-defense. You know that. As your president, I will never allow them to take away your liberty, your dignity, your social security. And I will never, ever allow them to take away your sacred right to keep and bear arms. I don't know about that right now. There's really there's no political benefit for Trump in conceding anything on gun control to the other side. But I am hearing that the Trump White House and uh, the Department of Justice are thinking about uh, are thinking about sending something along. Yeah, D- here you go. DOJ sends gun le- legislation package to the White House as debate rages over. Ma- OK, yeah, no, this was the options. This was the options. But I- I've heard that it's gone beyond that now. To they're narrowing down because this was from about a week ago. They're narrowing down the options to. Oh, that's right. We should actually do this thing. I don't see what the benefit is. I don't see how this is going to result in anything other than a a, a feeling of li- the left getting its way on guns, which is not good because you're just encouraging them to do more of this. Um, and then you have, for example, the effort to demonize the the uh, NRA continues. The NRA has held our Congress hostage. Doing everything possible to obscure the truth. Trying to appeal to a small subset of extremists. They think they can say jump and, hey, oppose this bill, oppose that bill, don't get that done, don't do that. Suggest you're either in favor of the Second Amendment or you want to take everyone's guns away. It's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. And on issue after issue, they are not only out of touch with where the American people are. They are way out of touch with where gun owners are. This is not something we just have to put up with. This is not some cosmic force that can't be stopped. In other words, when we listen to people instead of corporations or special interests, this is going to change. 
I promise you, this is going to change. We've got to fight the corruption, and we've got to be willing to push back. This is something that the vast majority of Americans want. And we have got to have the courage to take them on. The NRA, we can beat. And it's time that we take action. Tell them to stop working for the gun industry and start working for the American family. President Trump, please tell them Molan Labe and leave us all alone. Okay? Don't do this. Don't go forward with some just it's just a response to left wing pressure they, they haven't won the argument. There's there's nothing that they can point to that would be helpful for saving lives from the perspective of, of doing some kind of gun control measure here. All that all that, you know, you're going to get is additional laws, additional harassment. I just looked today at the at what it takes to get a gun in New York City because I would like to exercise my Second Amendment rights here. It's, it's, it's going to take me six months six months i was trained by the federal government with weapons and had a top secret clearance for years it'll take me six months to get a gun and that's assuming that i get through all this stuff and then i'll figure out wow this guy is really right wing i don't know if we can give him a gun sounds scary you're gonna you're gonna make concessions to the other side on this we have so many gun laws already in place and it just if you do the universal background check, you're setting up what will become a de facto registry. There's every every transaction will be will be logged and cataloged, and then they'll be able to very easily go through them all, maintain a database of all of it, and then you have a registry. And then the call becomes, all right, everybody who has this kind of gun, turn it in. All right, everybody who has that kind of gun, turn it in. All of a sudden, you know, you're left with double barrel shotguns only, Elmer Fudd style, for legal for people that want to own firearms. And for all the criminals, guess what? They didn't turn in their stuff. Oh, wow, what a shock. It's almost like how gun-free zones don't stop mass murderers. I worry about Trump on this one. He says he's a gun guy, and, you know, Trump is great in many ways, but you know, he's really, he's really I don't know if he really is a, uh, he's not a Second Amendment guy. He listens too much to people who are giving him bad advice on this one. I worry he's getting bad advice from people very close to him in the White House. I think that's happening now. We'll see. Hopefully I'm wrong on this one. I rarely am. One of the reasons why I ran for Congress is to fight for the healing and the justice of all survivors. Uh, One in 16 women, of course we know this is not a genderized crime and sexual assault is a crime, uh, but uh, a crime uh, disproportionately perpetuated on to women. And one in 16 women, their first sexual experience was rape. This is a public health crisis, an epidemic. I see it also as a social justice issue. And it's deeply concerning that someone who serves on the highest court of the land could have this many uh, allegations. Allegations that are highly politically motivated and that keep on turning up false. There's a reason that we have the process we do. There's a reason that we have the system we do in place. It's actually to achieve justice. It's, It's not just so that we can have a system. There are reasons why we have the presumption of innocence, why we have the right to face accusers. These are all procedural, but yes, they're also intended to get us to a place of justice. And it is unjust for someone to suffer professional consequences, reputational consequences, for an endless series of lies, innuendos, smears, falsehoods, that we all understand why they're being made, where they're coming from. 
And the Democrats just, they go with it anyway. They realize that if they start adjudicating whether something is a fair allegation against somebody like Kavanaugh, then they might have to do that again in the future. Better to just stick to the script. Keep the party first assault going. Right? Attack Kavanaugh. That's all that really matters. The truth is irrelevant. Well, here's a little extra bit of truth that I thought you should all know. Another thing that just was coincidentally left off of the New York Times's Sunday essay and hasn't been mentioned now until a few days into this fiasco. So you had Max Steyer, who I already t- played for you yesterday. I mean, this is a guy, a guy who uh, he's like a better government or a good government advocate who talks about collectivizing the power of government. This guy's a lib. He's a liberal. I mean, that, that's listen to him for two seconds and you know. He also represented Clinton in the 90s, I believe, in the, specifically in the Paula Jones issue, but tied into Whitewater and, uh, and uh, I always want to say Watergate. That's a different one. Whitewater, Monica Lewinsky. It's tough to keep all the Clinton scandals straight just because it was the whole presidency was really one long scandal. But it turns out that Max Steyer's wife, Florence U. Pan, was nominated by Obama to be on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. President Obama wanted Florence Yupan to be on the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is known to everybody in legal circles as the preeminent stepping stone to the Supreme Court. It's the antechamber. It's, it's the, 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 the holding place right before you might get a Supreme Court slot if you are so called upon and chosen. But Florence Yupan did not get that D.C. Circuit Court spot because the Republican-controlled Congress, I'm sorry, uh, Senate, under Mitch McConnell, just let her nomination lapse. They didn't, they didn't, you know, destroy her character. They didn't drum up fake allegations, call her a criminal based on nothing. And no, they didn't do any of that. They just decided that Republicans had a majority in the Senate. Senate rules allow them to decide whether or not they're going to have an up or down vote on this particular nominee for the D.C. Circuit. And they just didn't do it. Just like it was the Merrick Garland situation, except Merrick Garland was up for a Supreme Court seat. This is for the D.C. Circuit. Now, someone please explain to me why it is that in none of the interviews that these New York Times authors of this Kavanaugh hit book, which is what it is, it's not going to be a hit, but it's a hit book. I mean, it's, it's meant to go after Kavanaugh. Uh, someone explain to me why they didn't think that was relevant information. The one witness they can cite that's new, claiming an event that even the so-called victim herself does not recall. Their one witness has a wife who was blocked by Republicans from more or less becoming Supreme Court junior justice, Florence Yupan, right? Right before the Supreme Court. You don't think that maybe there's a little bit of bitterness there? That doesn't go perhaps to motive with this guy. He sees an opportunity. Yeah, I was at Yale with Kavanaugh. We got drunk a lot. Who's going to know? See, one of the problems with these allegations against Kavanaugh is that not only uh, can they not, not only is it very hard to entirely disprove them, 
because they're so old and so vague and so lacking in any real detail. No one's going to get in any trouble for making these kinds of allegations. All you have to be is a liberal Democrat who believes very strongly in Roe v. Wade and who's very angry about the conservative tilt of the Supreme Court and you know all the rest of it and Trump. And, and you say, yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure Kavanaugh one night late drunk at a party. I mean, I can tell you this. I could get away with saying this about anybody that I went to college with who's a guy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw him at a party one night and he got really drunk and, you know, he might have, I think he groped a girl's, uh, you know, behind and she was very upset, but no one really remembers because we're drunk. How are you going to disprove that? I could even swear that under oath. I could even bear false witness. Oh, that's right. There's a reason why that's a sin. I could bear false witness and and swear with my right hand on a Bible and I'm never going to suffer any legal consequences because how could you how could you prove that i'm lying you can never prove that i'm lying but that's why things like the possible motivation to lie are so important that's why the full context of who this max steyer guy is is something that clearly the new york times didn't want to give us i mean the new york times has been humiliated this week to anybody who is not completely delusional and brainwashed they have been humiliated and they should feel humiliated for what they have done but they don't view it that way. They just double down. I mean, they did their best to attack Kavanaugh. They did their best to undermine him, to hurt his, uh, you know, to, to, to hurt him on the Supreme Court. And I, I really do believe this. Uh, and I, I give Eric Erickson credit for getting out ahead of this and making some noise about this point, because I think he's right, that this is also a message to Supreme Court Justice Roberts. That if you mess with us on the abortion thing, there's nothing the left is unwilling to do. No place they won't go in order to exact revenge and to uh, to take consequences out against people. So, yeah, that's right. Max Steyer, Mr. Oh, so honest Max Steyer. Turns out his wife feels like she was mistreated by the Republican uh, Republican controlled Senate on the issue of getting confirmed as a judge. You don't think that maybe that factors into his thinking about his little story about Kavanaugh? Also, I just as an aside here, the story that Kavanaugh just got drunk and then went and, and put his member in a, in a girl's hand? No way. No way. It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to tell you guys something. I, I knew a lot of drunk maniacs in college, a lot of guys that got way too wasted, way too blackout drunk, and, you know, some of them definitely were too gropey with women sometimes. And, you know, there was there was stuff that happened that was not not acceptable. I never heard of this. Just walk up to a girl at a party. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to put my put my stuff on. That's why when they said it would have been the talk of the campus, it absolutely would have been the talk. of the, You can't do this. This is in the realm of, oh, yeah, you know, people do stuff. They get drunk. Please. Well, this isn't Yale. This isn't an animal house. This is the way it is now. As long as the lie has a life cycle useful enough to damage Kavanaugh, they'll tell it anyway. Steyer's lying, folks. They can tell us about how honest he is. Oh, just like they can tell us about how honest Andy McCabe is. That's right. He's facing felony lying charges. Or how honest Comey was. That's right. He, he abandoned essential FBI regulations and, and, and abused his position for petty uh, personal attacks. Or how, how Mueller was 
America's greatest law enforcement officer. Mueller needs a blanket and a sippy cup and some time to relax. But we had to figure that out. We had to figure that out for ourselves, didn't we? The media didn't want to tell us any of that. We'll be right back. Oh, I I believe that that every member uh, of this caucus and beyond, because this is not a partisan issue. Again, this is an epidemic. And for far too long, we have been way too tolerant and complicit in perpetuating rape culture. Um, And so I think that everyone is committed uh, in this Democratic caucus to addressing that issue. But Durbin Um, says, get real, Congresswoman. He says, get real. To that, you say what? I say, uh, this is the reckoning. And gone are the days where we will be complicit and lackadaisical in the fact that this is an epidemic and survivors deserve healing and justice and everyone uh, deserves due process. Um, I've filed this resolution to initiate an impeachment inquiry um, because we need to get to the truth. And I think that Congress can, we've proven that we can do the work of legislating, of oversight and initiating investigations. That's what's happening in judiciary right now. Nobody believes what Congresswoman Presley is saying here, not even Congresswoman Presley. I mean, no one thinks that this is really about the things that she's saying it's about. Right. We're, we're all in this. We're all we all get that. We're all in on this, I assume. And this is just a lot of a lot of blather, a lot of talking points about Congress's oversight role and all this other stuff. And she throws in some phrases like rape culture. Rape culture is, is not a is not the thing that liberals pretend it is. I, I don't know. I don't know what rape culture is. I know what they think it is. Where does this where does this exist? Rape is a heinous crime. There's there's no place in America where anyone thinks that, you know, rape is not a big deal. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist on campuses. Doesn't exist in companies. There are rapists. There are bad people. There's not some culture, though, where this is normalized and everyone just walks around saying, yeah, you know, sometimes that happens. No, it's a felony. People go to prison for decades in some cases and rightfully so so this again no effort to deal with what really happened here which is that democrats in collusion yeah that's right i like that word in collusion with the new york times thought that they had something that could really hurt kavanaugh and this week was going to be bash kavanaugh week you know take it to him show kavanaugh that he hasn't just because he got confirmed he's on the Supreme Court doesn't mean that he's going to be able to have a day's peace. And the New York Times just, just belly flopped here. I mean, oh, it was brutal. And thank heavens that people were able to figure out what happened. And now they're acting like, yeah, I meant to dive in that way. That was fine. That was great. I, I don't, I don't think so. Not at all. Not at all impeaching Kavanaugh they're going to impeach him now after the stories that were told about him a few days ago have already completely fallen apart Debbie Ramirez has no idea what she's talking about hey let me ask you this do you think that it is likely do you think it's possible that uh the best friend Leland Kaiser the best friend of Christine Blasey Ford received as we now know a lot of pressure and even threats Right. Oh, things might come out about your life, too. They were threatening her. She was basically being blackmailed to to back up crazy Christine Blasey Ford's story. And she wouldn't do it. 
Do you think that that same pressure wasn't used against uh, Ramirez or anybody around her as well? Do you think that there that there was an unwillingness to tell Ramirez that you know maybe maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't negative pressure maybe it was positive pressure maybe it was hey you can be a hero here you can be a hero to women for all time going forward all you have to do is say that this guy just you know put his put his genitals in your vicinity at a party 30 years ago and you can save women's rights you can free women from oppression you can be a hero if you believe all that crap it's pretty it can be compelling right if you if you're actually buying into all that but does anyone think that that wasn't a part of this You'll notice, and I was thinking about this today as these New York Times reporters who are just going, one of them retweeted a Vox piece today that was like, oh, conservatives are making this seem like a much bigger deal than it was. No, it's a really big deal. They can try to fight this one out, but they're going to get crushed because it's a really big deal what happened. They left out a key detail and they left it out recklessly and I would argue intentionally. They can pretend that it was something else now, but we don't have to buy their lies. And I would also just say that uh, you know, it's amazing how it didn't matter. That it doesn't matter to them that it's fake. It doesn't matter to them that this is uh, that this is not true because it was all for a purpose, and the purpose was to destroy Kavanaugh. Um, the New York Times. It, it has been amazing to see this whole thing play out, and with every additional detail. The the great thing about defending Kavanaugh is that the facts have always been on your side and additional facts are even more on your side. Um, you know, the New York Times still doesn't even accept how big of an error it really committed here or rather how big of a lie it told. Um, and, you know, for those who still cling to the fiction that a reasonable person could think that Kavanaugh was credibly accused, well, then why was pressure put on Leland Kaiser to say things she did not believe to help Blasey Ford's baseless case. In court, that would be called witness tampering. That's what you would call it. Why should we accept that in any way here? Pretend like that's just the normal course of the way things are, the way things were. I've said it before. People that have been defending Kavanaugh have not had to retract have not had to back down, have not had to change their story once. Not you, not me, no one who has believed in the innocence of this man from the beginning has had a single day, a single moment where it was, oh, wow, I guess maybe Kavanaugh did do it. It went from, huh, let's hear about these allegations. That seems very unlikely to as soon as we found the facts out of a Blasey Ford. OK, so there are no facts. This is a hit. I was saying you can go back and look at the shows we were we were doing shows titled, I think, Christine Blasey Ford is lying like the first week of the allegations. And then it was Ramirez and then it was Swetnick and then it was a woman that I don't even know one even names her, but claimed that she was raped in a boat in Rhode Island, told the Senate this. And nobody believed it, not even Democrats could believe that because he had never even been in the state. It's disgusting, the Democrats. They're, they're disgusting. You know what you see, though? They never will debate this issue in public. They just hide. They just tell their little stories. They write this stuff for their own constituencies, for their own readership, and then they run away. None of them are man enough or woman enough to stand up and make this case against somebody who knows they're lying.
On day one of my administration, I will use my executive authority to start closing the pay gap between women of color and everyone else because it's about time we valued the work of women of color. We must recognize the systemic discrimination that infects our economy and we must work actively and deliberately to root it out and set this country on a better path. Elizabeth Warren is a shameless demagogue. I do think she is smart enough and well-read enough, although not nearly as well-read as she presents herself, to know that the pay gap is a myth. There's no such thing. There, There is no pay gap as presented by Democrats. There is a diff- there is a a differential in pay between men and women. But the moment that you account for things like chosen profession, hours worked, overtime, uh, just choices that one makes in the workplace, guess what? The pay gap disappears. Like so many other things, you know, when I discuss uh, climate change with you, I, I point out and, and I've seen now some more in-depth analyses about this. If what they say is true, that the uh, that the world is going to be underwater, at least whole sections of it, you know, the entire state of Florida, the coast of California, uh, 30 year mortgages right now uh, or, 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 you know, when people buy, take out a 30 year mortgage, home prices would have to would have to take this into account and insurance would have to take this into account. If they really believed in climate change, it would have an effect on beachfront property. Obama just bought a 15 million dollar mansion in Martha's Vineyard on on the beach. On the water at sea level. You think he's worried about that? See how people act. Forget about what people say they want to do. See what they actually do. Elizabeth Warren here is talking about the pay gap. If the pay gap were real, then anybody who was a capitalist, people do like money, capitalists like money too. Anyone who was a real capitalist would say, I've got a great idea. If I can get an almost 30%, let's say a 25% on average savings, on every employee I hire by just hiring a woman to do the same job as a man, I would only hire women. A 25% advantage in the labor cost in your business over your competitors, you would crush everyone. Just hire women. And of course, because, you know, hiring women, that that would never be considered discrimination. You can hire only women and only minorities, and that would never be considered discrimination. If you brought a a lawsuit saying, hey, I'm a I'm a white male like I didn't get hired. You know, it's very difficult. Those lawsuits do exist, but it's very difficult to win those lawsuits. Why don't people only hire women? Because they try to hire the best employee they can, man or woman. And they try to hire people that are going to bring the most value to the business because it is in their interest to do so. Elizabeth Warren saying she's going to close the pay gap with an executive order. That should really put a jolt into people. What does that even mean? How would that work? How would she do that? I'm not even sure she knows, but it's a good uh, it's a good applause line, I suppose. It's something that gets her supporters very uh, very fired up. You know, I just missed it. Uh, it was what was it last night? Elizabeth Warren gave a speech here in, in Manhattan at Union, uh, not Union Square Park, um, Washington Square Park. 
which is where Occupy Wall Street back in the day used to have a lot of its big meetings. I remember covering some of the big Occupy Wall Street gatherings, protest movements, whatever you want to call it, down in Washington Square Park. I've also played speed chess there against many an individual and uh, done better than they thought I would, I will have you know. What? It's true. What? You're a chess hustler? That's right. I got chess skills. That shouldn't surprise anybody. I got all I got all kinds of skills nobody knows about. They're like they're always like, "Damn, you're good at chess." I'm like, "That's right." I'm actually not that good, but I've I've learned enough from playing speed chess that you really just have to memorize some uh, some quick patterns because by making somebody else go very fast, if you know some movement patterns, you can usually win very. But, but the whole point is you have to move really fast, right? That's the thing. If someone thinks about it, it won't work. Anyway, uh, so she was there giving a speech. And I'm a little bit sad that I missed it because I think it would have been really interesting to see what Elizabeth Warren supporters, you know, how they react. I think they said there were 10 or 15,000 people there was their biggest. And I just can't imagine all these people in New York City. What do they think Elizabeth Warren's really going to do for them? This city is wildly expensive. It's expensive in large part because of, well, obviously supply and demand, but also there's a lot of regulations around housing. Tax rate here is very high. Uh, there's all kinds of government decision making about, look, there's a lot of central planning in New York City. A lot of costs are much higher than they should be. So I would have been interested to go just to see what the New York City socialists were really like, but I didn't know about it. And so I, I missed it. And I only saw it as it was happening. And I was like, ah. I don't know if I can go deal with the commies right now. I'm just going to have a nice, quiet night. So I decided to do something, just hang out solo, um, do my own thing, do some writing. But that then brings me to another former female presidential candidate out there on the on the stump. She's never going to give it up, folks. She's never going to admit that uh, she was wrong and that she wasn't a good candidate. That she wasn't going to win, and that no one cheated. She just wasn't good at this. She's back! So, I've talked with many of the Democratic candidates for president, as you might guess. I've answered their questions about everything from digital outreach to investments in the early states. And I've ended every conversation uh, by saying to each one, let me tell you what I think the biggest obstacle might very well turn out to be, and that is this. You can run the best campaign. You can have the best plans. You can get the nomination. You can win the popular vote. And you can lose the Electoral College and therefore the election for these four reasons. Number one, voter suppression. Wait, what are the other? Wait, do we cut off the other reasons? All right, I guess we'll just have to. I wanted to. I wanted to. Number two, they don't like pantsuits. I want to hear what the other reasons are. You know what this is? This is. Uh, this serves a couple of purposes. Hillary Clinton's out there saying this stuff because one, she's an egomaniac, and really thinks the presidency was hers, should be hers. She she still thinks to this day, I assure you, that she should be the president of the United States. And the fact that she's not is just a testament to how terrible Trump is, how unfair the world is, and, and all the rest of it. But that's that's really, you know, where that's really where it is. 
right? She thinks that it was hers and it was taken from her. She also, though, is playing into this uh, victim mentality that a lot of Democrats have around how they they really think that even when they lose elections, they win. Has a very interesting um, comment yesterday on the show. I mean, she's not a, she's not all that pro Trump, but she's she's uh, she's sharp and she does good work over at the Washington Examiner. When Tiana Lowe joined us, and she said that every Supreme Court justice except for Alito. Uh, that's a that's a conservative for the last whatever it is, 20 years now. The left has some reason, some excuse. Oh, that doesn't count. That person, there's an asterisk. That person's not, you know, not really shouldn't really be on the court. It's Merrick Garland seat. People say this. I've heard legal analysts say this. Like they're morons. It was never Merrick Garland's seat. He doesn't own it. It wasn't given to him. There's a process. He didn't get through the process. That's, you know tough. Sorry, libs. Of course, we know all about the Kavanaugh asterisk, which is just um, baseless, clearly politically motivated accusations with no evidence or corroboration. It's supposed to create an asterisk. Well, that's yeah, that's not going to be weaponized and abused for the rest of our lives. You look at you look at the way that they said, oh, well, because, you know, Bush stole the election. Oh, there's another thing. We, We always when we win elections, they must be stolen. Bush stole the election and Bush uh, with the whole Bush v. Gore Florida recount. Trump stole the election with, you know, because of Russia. I mean, this is these people are babies. They lost. And you see at the very top, they're babies. Hillary is being childish here. She lost. She's not the president. She's never going to be the president. It's time to give it up. Time to stop the lies. Voter suppression. Democrats like to point to places where they've had record voter turnout and claim voter suppression. And we ask how, and they say, oh, well, because voter because they asked for ID at the polling place, the Supreme Court has ruled on this already. And they have said that voter ID is not voter suppression, is not prohibited, is not unfair. I don't know. It's a, a suppression of rights. It's over three hundred dollars for me. I looked it up today because I'm getting ready to go through. Over three hundred dollars to get to to apply for a New York City handgun permit. I think it's three twenty-five. It's over three hundred bucks. Why don't we charge three hundred dollars for people to vote? I I have to. It cost me three hundred dollars in order to enjoy my Second Amendment rights. Why is that okay? If you ask them some lib, they'd say, oh, because of fingerprinting and background checks and whatever. Okay, well, I've got a constitutional right to a firearm, just like they've got a constitutional right to vote. Why do I have to pay over $300? But, you know, I digress. Actually, not really. It's kind of related, isn't it? But this is a lie. Just like Stacey Abrams running around saying that she would have won in Georgia. She would have won that gubernatorial race. But for voter suppression, that is a lie it's just not true do the democrats does the does the mainstream media ever call her out for that do they ever say hold on a second where's your evidence for that in fact all the if you look at the numbers if you look at what happened it's quite clear that that's not true she lost she lost an election it happens to democrats when was the last time you could think of where where conservatives were claiming 
Mainstream conservatism was saying that Supreme Court justice is illegitimate or that election didn't really happen. Libs do it all the time. Hillary does it. Doesn't care about it. Doesn't doesn't matter to her what it does to our faith and our institutions. But I mean, she's look, let's just say it. She's a deeply unethical and really damaged person. I've been saying she has a hole in her soul for a long time. The only thing that was going to fill it was the presidency. You know, now she's going to fill it with uh, rosé, yoga, and long walks in Chappaqua. I don't know if that's going to do it for her. We'll be right back. We also saw what happened in 2016. Experts estimate that anywhere from 27,000 to 200,000 Wisconsin citizen voters, predominantly in Milwaukee, were turned away from the polls. That's a lot of potential voters. They showed up, but maybe they didn't have the correct form of identification. Maybe the name on their driver's license included a middle name or an initial that wasn't on their voter registration. But officials made every excuse in the book to prevent certain people from voting in that election. Maybe they didn't have the right identification. Ugh, I thought we were done hearing from Hillary Clinton, but we're never really going to be done. Uh, she she can't help herself. We, we have to hear her opinions all the time. We have to always be hearing from Hillary Clinton about all things involving the, the election that she still pretends she would have won. Notice the range there, too. Experts estimate, what was it, 25,000 to 250,000 or something? That's a big range. <laughs> that was true. That's a lot. That's a lot. Almost like it's such a big range that experts don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're just guessing. You know, I can guess, too. Well, um, I estimate that on the day of the election, there were at least two or three million people who were hung over and uh, people who tend to go out and party are more likely to be conservative. Therefore, Trump really should have won the popular vote. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. <laughs> I knew John was going to hit that one. Yeah, it's true. Prove me wrong. Um, speaking of Hillary and never going away. Jimmy Carter's still making the rounds, but he's talking about something that I have to say, heaven forbid, but here we are. I agree with former President Carter on something. Here's what he said. I hope there's an age limit. (laughs) You know, if I were just 80 years old, (laughs) if I was 15 years younger, I don't believe I could undertake the duties that I experienced when I was president. But one thing, you have to be very flexible with your mind. You have to be able to go from one subject to another and concentrate on each one adequately and then put them all together in a comprehensive way like I did between Begin and Sadat with a peace agreement. You also have to be able to adopt new ideas. He's saying that there should be an age limit for the presidency. And this is going to be a very real discussion. You know, Joe Biden, I, I still... I still cling to my belief that he's not going to be their nominee. But all the major polls, all the real, all the number crunchers are saying, sorry, Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. As so they're all they're across the board, pretty much. That has been the trend. In fact, one amazing statistic that I saw yesterday was that in California right now, among likely Democrat voters, 
Andrew Yang is beating Kamala Harris, which was just amazing to me. Yang Gang is a phenomenon such that Kamala, Kamala Harris, who for months we were all told, oh, she's, you know, she brings all these different elements together in a very appealing candidacy for Democrats, and maybe she'll even win over some undecideds. And we were told all the, oh, she's the real deal. She's the real candidate. No breakthrough, nothing. Yang's ahead of her in her home state of California. So keep that in mind. But Biden, look, he, he seems too old for the job. And it does matter. And I do think the Democrats recognize the second that they try to pull the, oh, that's not fair. You can't make an issue of you're being ageist. You know, ageist like producer Mark. Yeah, that's right. We know. He's like, yeah, what's it like being north of 30, old men? Yeah, my bones creak. How about that, producer Mark? They creak. I got, I got like a like a crick, like it makes cl- you know clicking noises. You'll be there too one day. What was it like being at the first ever Super Bowl? Wow, when was that? <laughs> I didn't know. I think it was like '67. Oof, something man. like that. It was amazing. Yeah, we didn't even wear helmets back then. You young whippers. Didn't even know what a television was when you were a kid. You don't even understand. Yeah, you television. If you had one TV in the whole neighborhood, it was amazing. Everybody watched one black and white box. The thing was like three by five inches of actual screen. The rest of it was just casing to hold all that stuff together like a giant sausage. Um, All right, we'll be right back. There was a fair amount of theatrics being played out by both Mr. Collins and by Mr. Lewandowski. Uh, I think you have to look at Mr. Lewandowski as an adverse witness. He had no interest in complying with this actual subpoena outside of showing up. He intended to uh, obstruct justice once again, frankly, by not being willing to give answers to questions by the Democrats. Uh, I think if I were... Mr. Nadler right now, I would be slapping Mr. Lewandowski with an inherent contempt uh, order and calling him in front of the House of Representatives and fining him. An inherent contempt order, huh? Bring it, Democrats. Bring it. Let's let's see you do it. Let's see where that goes to live in a country where you can decide that you don't like the way someone's answering your questions. You're going to start Finding them? You know who was held in contempt of Congress? Attorney General Eric Holder. This is the this is a tool the Democrats they're not going to do it. You know why? Because even they realize where this leads. They put so much pressure on our institutions. They put so much downward pressure on some of the most important uh, parts of our, our so-called democracy. They always love to refer to it as a democracy. They push all the outer limits. They have no respect whatsoever for the actual functionings of these institutions. And the moment something happens that they don't like, they're willing to toss out the rule book and just decide, well, we're going to do it my way. Meanwhile, Corey Lewandowski is not backing down at all. He's just saying that this is complete nonsense. I don't have any reason to be held in contempt, and I've told the members of Congress I'm happy to come back and answer more questions if they need me to after the five- or six-hour charade that I went through yesterday. Yeah, what are they going to hold him in contempt for? The White House has told him that under executive privilege, he should not answer any questions about his conversations with, with, White, House, uh, with White House officials or with, with the president. 
Okay, well, if they've got a problem with that, figure it out with the White House. Or if they really think that he's wrong, all right, fine. All them in contempt. See where that gets you. A lot of talk. A lot of talk from Democrats. And you know what I will say about the Trump administration, really more than anything else, President Trump himself? They don't know how to deal with an opposition. They don't know how to deal with, with political targets who refuse to bend the knee. The Democrats still haven't figured this out yet. If you don't cave, if you don't give them what they want, if you don't just decide you're going to pack up and leave, they get very flustered. They don't really understand what to do. And Corey Lewandowski yesterday was just turning the tables on them because it was clear they weren't trying. To, what are they trying to do? They want to ask him. They, they want to ask him to recite things that are already in record from the Mueller report. As if as if he's just supposed to do whatever they say, whenever they say it, they're looking for sound bites to use to put on MSNBC and CNN. I'm sorry. I don't think so. He obviously didn't think so either. I also received hundreds of thousands of emails, some days with as many as a thousand emails. And unlike Hillary Clinton, I don't think I ever deleted any of those. Many of them were responded to with either one word answers or forwarded to other staffers for additional follow up. But throughout it all, and to the best of my recollection, I don't ever recall having any conversations with foreign entities, let alone any who were offering to help to manipulate the outcome of an election. Responding to contempt with contempt is a pretty natural human emotion. And I do think that ultimately that is what Corey Lewandowski was doing here. The Democrats are contemptuous of him. They're not there to respect him, get answers from him. They are there to grandstand, to make him look like a fool, to hurt the people, not to hurt him and to hurt the people that he worked with and for, to hurt his chances to run uh, for the Senate in New Hampshire. They're there on a seek and destroy mission. Why should Corey Lewandowski pretend otherwise? Why should he be the one who has to uh, act like the, the rules only count for his side? Uh, this is this is again, this is wartime conservatism, friends. You see what the other side does. Do you want to you want to you play by their rules? Keep losing. You want to play by their rules and get slapped around? Or do you want to say, no, I've had enough? Thanks. I don't think I'll let Eric Swalwell and uh, you know, whoever, all, the, all the rest, I can't even remember now, going after him. I said, what was Nadler, of course, you know, Jerry Nadler saying his stuff, doing his usual nonsense. These people are clowns. Clowns. And Lewandowski was... You know, telling them exactly what he should have, in my opinion, which was just, you know, you know where to you know where to stuff it. Leave me alone. I've had enough of this right now. If they want to if they want to hold them in contempt, let's see. Let's see how that goes. Let's see where that stops and starts. Um, I think it was the right I think it was the right move. Um, I, I do think this is problematic when you say I have no obligation to be candid. And, and when Corey Lewandowski said that, of course, it was it was like man uh, dog bites man. We all are aware that the administration does not place a value on being truthful and honest. And so he, he, he it was nice that he would come out and state it so bluntly, but it was no big surprise. I mean, can, can Tim Kaine just be honest about what was said? This is a classic Democrat moment here. You have Tim Kaine 
talking about the need for Corey Lewandowski to be honest, and he's being dishonest about what Corey Lewandowski said. Corey Lewandowski said that there was nothing, uh, there was nothing that requires him to be truthful with the media. Guess what? That's true. That is reality. And the, and the media can act like public officials should be run out of town the moment that they say anything that is untruthful to the media, but this is as old as politics itself. You know, they can try to make it sound like this is some terrible crime against the Republic, but in reality, the media is oppositional to the president. And a lot of people recognize that this media in particular, the mainstream media, is dishonest at its core about what its real mission is day to day. They don't seek to shed light on the truth in America. They seek to destroy Trump. Why should we have to sit around and pretend otherwise? And why should the White House? I mean, look, I think one of the greatest innovations of this White House is to recognize that 90 percent of the press corps is a bunch of libs, a bunch of Democrats. And of that 90 percent, I'd say 90 percent of the 90 percent are activists, really make almost no effort whatsoever at being objective journalists. And so with that, speaking of contempt, with that degree of contempt directed at the White House, why not why not respond in kind? Okay, if you guys are going to try to misrepresent what we're doing, if you're going to spread lies about us all the time, we're going to call you fake news, or as Trump has said, very fake news. If he wasn't speaking some degree of, of truth with that, and I think it's generally very truthful, but if there wasn't a, a, a lot of truth to it, then the media wouldn't be nearly as upset, would they? Why does it bother them so much when Trump says fake news? Why does it get them so riled up when he talks about how they they keep presenting these stories and the stories that are that are fake are generally always about Trump? They don't make these huge errors. In the other, I mean, this the New York Times has been making a mockery of itself the last couple of days with these uh, these two reporters who just can't get out of their own way. And now they're they were complaining. I love this. They're complaining about how Fox News, Fox News is the problem. Oh, look at how Fox twisted things. You know, you, you had you had Vox.com claiming that it was just a just an honest mistake that got removed in the editing process. Okay, well, if it was just an honest mistake that got removed in the editing process, the fact that the additional accuser has never on the record accused anyone of anything, and her friends claim that Kavanaugh did nothing. Why did the authors also leave that out of a long NPR interview? Just never comes up, huh? Almost like they're trying to ram through a narrative to do damage, and then they figure they'll clean it up afterwards. They hate being called fake news. I know that at CNN, for example, if you ever refer to them as fake news publicly, and they know about it, even if you're just somebody who's not doesn't do that much media, if you refer to the fake news CNN... Uh, they, unless you're an administration official, they'll make exceptions for that, but they will not have you, uh, on air. They, they are very sensitive about it. They make all kinds of claims about how that's just, that's unacceptable. That's too much. It's beyond the pale. I like what Lewandowski did because it reminds us that we don't have to just sit and take it. That in the same week that they tried a straight up smear operation on Kavanaugh, there is another option. There's another alternative. 
And that alternative is fight back. We better do it this year. I mean, the good news is Trump is definitely going to do it, but you better be prepared wherever you are across the country. If you want to be involved in this uh, re-election in one way or another, if you want to share your thoughts and your values, you better be ready to fight because the other side is coming after all of us on this stuff. My name is Greta Thunberg. I have not come to offer any prepared remarks at this hearing. I'm instead attaching my testimony. It is the IPCC special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the SR 1.5, which was released on October 8, 2018. I am submitting this report as my testimony because I don't want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to the scientists. And I want you to unite behind the science. And then I want you to take real action. Thank you. And then I want you to brush your teeth and go to bed early because you're like 13 years old and you need sleep. And you need life experience and you need to read a lot of books and you need to learn things and you need to grow and you need to understand more. My friends, that young girl is testifying in front of Congress today. Congressional testimony from how producer Mark, you tell me how old is she? I think she's 13 or 14, but maybe she's a year older than that. 16. Wow. She looks younger than that. Um, 16 years old. Okay, even still, I don't care. I don't care what she has to say about climate change. I don't care what she has to say about much of anything other than what the cool 16-year-old kids are listening to these days and maybe what the teenage fashion styles are or something. And it's not mean. It's not mean to say this. It's not. I am not putting her down. If I were her and I had the whole media acting like everything I said was some pronouncement from Einstein himself, I would say, okay, this is kind of cool. I'll roll with this. It's more fun than being in school. Why would Congress ever testify? What do we have to learn from me? She's a 16-year-old. She's not a scientist. Even if she was a would-be scientist, she's 16 years old. This is yet another data point. They talk about the data and the science. Here's a data point. A scientific movement that uses 16-year-olds as its spokespersons is not about science. It's really not that complicated. It's not that hard, is it? You can just think through this. It all just makes sense. Why not have an actual scientist testify if this was so compelling? Why use a young girl... Oh, we know why, because if you criticize her, and I believe she has um, Asperger's syndrome as well. So if you criticize a girl who has a, a, uh, what are we, a, I don't even know what disability or whatever the preferred nomenclature is for, for Asperger's, um, you're a bad person. And you're, why are you beating? I've seen journalists, I've seen blue check Twitter and Facebook journalists do this, or on Twitter and Facebook, where if you point out like I do, this is absurd. You know, do I want to hear from a 14-year-old about whether the Fed should lower rates? Come on, 14-year-old finance genius. Let's let's hear what you think about lowering rates. Because you're just, what, going to read the talking points that someone's handed to you? 
I, I just wish there was a greater degree of honesty here. Uh, honesty around how much this climate change movement is really an emotional and religious belief. As I keep saying, it is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion, for actual religion, for an actual relationship and philosophy and connection to and spirituality based in in God or based in you know whatever deity or series of deities one one thing exists. No, now it's this is this is the existential crisis of our time, and they. I would ask if a 16-year-old should testify in front of the Congress, why not have a toddler? Why not have a five-year-old just read off whatever is, is printed for him or her by the green, the green energy lobby? It makes just as much sense. This is indefensible. And as an American, I have to say, it's, it's embarrassing. Our, our Congress is increasingly a source of embarrassment. What happened with Corey Lewandowski yesterday, where you had these uh, these Democrats all just lining up one after another to try to get that that one viral moment, you know, try to get that one moment where they were going to establish that you know, they they were really the hashtag resistance fighter. They were the one that was trying to hold Trump accountable by ridiculing and humiliating his people. And yet. What we saw was Corey Lewandowski saying, no, I don't think. I don't think I'll let you arrest us today, Behan. It's a great line, it really is. It's true, though. Um, that's what's going on. That's where we are now. I mean, this Congress is an embarrassment. The people that are constantly trying to come up with new ways to discuss how horrible Trump is, and then and then turn around and, and act like this is some assemblage that are that the Congress is some assemblage of great intellectuals because people are in the Congress. We should listen to them. I'm sorry. I just disagree. I do not find them nearly as impressive as they find themselves. Now, some of them are great, obviously, where it's a big body. You've got uh, hundreds of members, hundreds of members in the in the House, 100 members in the Senate. And eventually you reach a point where you understand that a lot of them are just unimpressive. And you move on from there. But to have a 16-year-old girl testifying about a massively complicated scientific issue and telling us, really lecturing the American people through our own elected body that urgent action must be taken, this is embarrassing. And anybody who's a climate change advocate, fanatic, whatever you want to call them, they should be embarrassed by this too. But they're not. Seems some big events happening in the Middle East. Obviously, we have the standoff now between Saudi Arabia and Iran and perhaps the United States as well, not just on the sidelines, but right in the background. And also a uh, major election shock in Israel. Uh, But first, uh, let's get to our friend, uh, Dr. Jonathan Schanzer, who's with us now. He is from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and uh, he's going to tell us what his thoughts are on all this. Uh, Dr. Schanzer, great to have you back. Thanks, Buck. Good All to be with you. Uh, so let's just start with the the Iran Saudi situation. How big a deal is this as you see it? Uh, you know, how different is this from the provocations we've seen in the past? And what first? Let, let's start with what should the Saudis do? <laughs> okay, so. Um... Look, first of all, let's just say that uh, the attack that just took place was 
a hugely significant one in, in the sense that the Saudis have, um, you know, they are one of the world's largest producers of oil, sit atop a massive proven reserve, um, and they have this massive facility that is um, a core component of the global supply of oil. Um, the Iranians know this, and they have struck at it. They've done so with precision. They've done so with significant weaponry. Uh, so this was not just simply an attack on Saudi Arabia, as some would claim. This was an attack on the U.S.-led system. It was certainly an attack on the global supply of oil. And I must also add that um, the, the reassurances that we've heard from the Saudis that this is all just going to be fixed very quickly to me, does not strike me as true. I think they put a rosy uh, spin on a lot of things. If you remember the killing of that journalist, uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, you know, they I mean for, for weeks they were saying it didn't happen, it's lies, and, of course, we ultimately found out the very ugly truth. I think we're going to probably go through a similar exercise here with the Saudis. Now, as to what the Saudis should do, I mean, certainly I'd like to see the Saudis be able to defend themselves but we do have questions about their military capabilities. You know, they've been fighting a war in Yemen and not doing it very well. Um, you know, instead of attacking Houthi targets, they've taken out school buses full of children. Um, it's not gone well for them. Do you so think that's, I mean, jo- Dr. Jonathan, do you, do you think that that's an accident? I mean, the Saudis are spending the third most on on munitions each year, on, on, on defense of any country in the world. So why can't they be more efficient, or are they haphazard on purpose? Look, that, that's a good question. And, and, I mean, I actually visited Saudi Arabia last year, and, and you know, I was in one of these operation rooms, and, uh, you know, they really uh, made it look like it was a really professional operation. And, yes, they're buying up American sophisticated weaponry hand over fist, but, you know, when you look at how they have prosecuted their own conflicts, it does not look good. And it does raise the question about education, about training, about commitment. And, uh, you know, I think the question is, you know, if the Saudis respond, you know, with U.S. backing and the Saudis fail to deliver the message that we want them to deliver, what does that do to their deterrence, to our deterrence? Does it embolden Iran? Does it make things worse? Does it turn the tide of, of public opinion in the favor of the Iranians? Uh, these are things that I would not personally want to take a chance on. What do you think should happen? So, there, you know, look, there are a lot of different ways to respond. We've, we've seen from the Trump administration, as they've already just announced, new sanctions, uh, and we expect those to be announced, let's just say, within the next couple of days or week. Um, I have concerns about that response only because I think it's a perpetuation of the status quo. The Iranians decided to attack Saudi Arabia and this oil installation because they're under sanctions. Uh, and they were trying to gain leverage over the United States, showing that they could hurt us at the pump um, and that we needed to come to the table and offer certain concessions. I think if we up the ante on sanctions, they likely up the ante on continued attacks against U.S. interests and against oil uh, targets. So then the question is, what do you do beyond that? I think there are two things. One is I think it's time to engage with our international partners again. There are all these countries that that stopped working with us on Iran policy because we walked away from the Iran nuclear deal saying the Iranians were doing everything we wanted. Um, Well, I think we can now dispense with that. We know now that they are aggressors and that they're not just targeting the U.S. or Saudi Arabia. They're targeting global oil 
one would hope that the French or the Brits or even the Russians or the Chinese would say, we don't want that. We don't want to spend more, more on oil. We need to get Iran to heal. So let's all work together. Then there's the last part of this, which is a credible threat from the United States. Not necessarily conflict, but certainly moving assets closer to Iran in the region, letting them know that there can be a you know real ramification if they continue to escalate. Right now, I am concerned that Iran does not fear us in the least. They look at us with this posture that we're getting ready to leave the region and that we only rely on sanctions, and that is not a good place to be in with a regime like Iran. What would a strike that is uh, commensurate with the provocation here look like? Uh, it, you could hit, you know, uh, Iranian refining facilities. There's there are one or two facilities that I think uh, are probably already being looked at. Um, there's also Karg Island, which is a major shipping point for uh, Iranian petroleum products. You could imagine that a strike along those lines would be uh, would be commensurate. Uh, there is the question, though. I think a couple of things. One, the president does seem to be concerned about the price of oil and, and what a conflict might do uh, in terms of uh, just the health of the economy. Um, and so one doesn't know what that would do uh, globally. Uh, there's also the question of an Iranian response and whether they attack the U.S. directly and whether this draws us into another conflict, which, of course, the president is loath to do. Um, we may yet not really have many options left if the Iranians continue to escalate. But I think it's important that we have those sorts of targets already in sight. I'm sure the Pentagon has already been thinking through these. But it's really interesting to note that there are voices from the Pentagon right now urging caution. Uh, and this is not exactly the traditional role of the Pentagon. Usually the Pentagon says, we're here, we're at the ready. You let us know when you need us and, you know, we can do damage to the enemy. Right now, the Pentagon seems to be pumping the brakes. And that is sort of a new thing for me to to, uh, to watch and I don't really know what it means. How concerning should it be that it seems that uh, 19 projectiles, I mean, they're all missiles in a sense, but it was a combination of cruise missiles and drones, uh, that 19 projectiles were fired, 17 hit their targets based on the damage assessment I was reading this morning, and that neither the Saudi nor Iran, uh, Saudi nor American radar capabilities uh, picked this up. Uh, it's it's deeply disconcerting. I, I I read a report today suggesting that the um, the Saudis were um, actually pointing their detection uh, in the direction of Iraq, Syria, Yemen, um, all with this understanding that Iran would never attack them directly, um, and so that they don't have the means to intercept directly from uh, you know if, if attacks are launched by Iran, and that is uh, why we have this kind of blind spot. That is a heck of a blind spot to have when you're talking about an aggressive country like Iran, you know, a state sponsor of terrorism that has been mastering uh, missile technology and precision-guided munitions, these PGM kits, which they're sending all over the place, you know, to Hezbollah and Hamas and, and other proxies. Uh, you'd think that they'd be ready for all of this. One interesting thing to think about, of course, is not just that they'd be looking to buy additional weaponry from the United States, but also potentially to draw from the expertise of the Israelis. And there's been this really interesting kind of quiet diplomacy that's been taking place between the Saudis and the Israelis because of their mutual antipathy for Iran. 
maybe this is a moment where they start to work together and the Middle East politics begin to change. This is potentially one positive spin, but really right now it's a lot of negatives. You're wondering how professional the Saudis are, whether they can handle this themselves, how the U.S. needs to get involved, should it be involved, and whether this puts us on the precipice of another conflict um, that many Americans are uh, very concerned about getting into. How, how rattled, uh, I mean, I know you have contacts all across the region, how, how rattled are the Saudis by what happened? Well, this is the thing. I mean, right now I think they're circling the wagons. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of kind of uh, personal um, outreach to, you know, uh, oil companies to try to figure out how to get things back online, a lot of reassurances publicly, press statements and things like that. Um, I have to tell you, um, we're not, we're probably not going to get an honest answer out of the Saudis for a little bit. It's going to be rosy for a while. They're going to put the positive spin on it. The thing that I'm concerned about is that um, our financial institutions are buying it. Um, you know, talking to oil traders, uh, folks are saying, well, look, we've got lots of ex- excess capacity right now, and it's going to be fine. Um, well, what if Iran keeps doing this? And I think Iran certainly has the capacity and the will to keep doing this. And if the Saudi facilities are not put back online quickly and others are taken offline, you have the potential for a real crisis. So that's the kind of thing that I'm watching right now. And I think that goes very underreported. What do you think the gloves come off option would be from the American and Saudi point of view if we just decided we want the Iranians to know that uh, never, never again are they going to do something like this? Um, well, like I said, I think there are some uh, Iranian oil facilities. You start to take those off offline, and what you're doing is you're you're removing whatever. No, but I, I mean more along the lines of is, is do you think there's a shock and awe possibility here too, or are they are they going to just st- stay away from that because of the possibility of I mean that is an escalation, right? Then then we are at war. Yeah, that, that that's true. I, although I think that look, there are other things that the U.S. has been thinking about taking out for quite some time, like uh, Iranian nuclear facilities. Um, and, you know, they've been loath to do it, but maybe this is the time now to say, look, not only are we going to take out your ability to sell oil, but all these nuclear threats that you continue to, to pose and, and to issue, well, they're going to be taken off the table now, too, because we've got these Moabs and bunker busters that are going to get rid of those nuclear sites that you've got dug in on the side of a mountain. Um, so I can imagine doing that. And by the way, that's the kind of thing that the international community, even if they're very fearful of a conflict, they're going to cheer because the Iranians have... Um, you know, have, have had everybody running scared for basically a decade now over that nuclear program. We're going to come back in just a moment with Dr. Jonathan Shanzer from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and talk about this uh, Israeli election, which there are now results in on that in just a moment. All right, back uh, on the Buck Sexton Show here, we have Dr. Jonathan Shanzer from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Jonathan, uh, results came in. Bibi didn't win outright. Netanyahu is is not uh, in the clear. What happens now in Israel? Well, uh, you know, I would say that uh, right now uh, Bibi looks a little hobbled. Um, I think he had hoped that he would win outright the second time around. But, you know, uh, I'm sort of joking today that um, Election Day in Israel should be renamed Groundhog's Day. Um, the numbers are basically the same. It was kind of a dead heat between um, Netanyahu's Likud party and Benny Gantz's uh, Blue and White Party. Gantz, of course, being the former chief of staff of the Israeli army, 
who's pulled together kind of a centrist coalition uh, to try to unseat Netanyahu, who's now the longest-serving prime minister in Israeli history. Um, I think, you know, the, the things that we're watching right now is this uh, desire on the part of some to form a unity government before, between these two uh, parties. Um, and uh, and I think it probably would be the best thing for political stability in the country. The problem is, is that the blue and white party guys say that they refuse to serve with Bibi, and Bibi is not likely interested in serving with them. So what we're watching for now is Netanyahu has a hearing uh, with the Attorney General uh, of Israel in about two weeks for a bunch of charges that are pending against him. If uh, he is wounded by these, you might begin to see defections from within Netanyahu's own party. Uh, there could be an attempt at a coup to unseat him and for the rest of the members of Likud uh, to start working and reaching across the aisle with blue and white, and you would ultimately see uh, that uh, that coalition government. I would say we probably have about 30 days to let this thing play out, which is what the mandate is uh, for coalition building uh, in Israel. Is there is there any real concern that the uh, that because there's this shift now in Israeli politics that there would be a a follow-on shift in the US Israel relationship in, in any meaningful or important way or is the expectation here this is it's interesting to us okay Israel important Middle East ally Middle East is obviously heating up right now Iran Saudi things are going a little crazy uh, but things will what likely be the same with Israel or would it really matter well, look, uh, a couple of things to point out. First of all, the president himself said uh, today that uh, his relationship is with Israel. America's relationship is with, is with Israel, not with one person. Um, and, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, will respect the outcome of, uh, of these elections. The other thing to note here is that Blue and White and Likud, have, I mean, their foreign policies are indistinguishable as far as I'm concerned uh, from a security perspective. Maybe some domestic things at home um, where, where they might differ on the margins, but in terms of their views on Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, the U.S.-Israel relationship, all of these things, the mill-to-mill relationship, it's all basically the same. Um, these, the guys at Blue and White are, are hawks, but they are um, less inclined to work with um, Israel's religious right, uh, and that is Netanyahu's base, that religious right. And that's really the big difference here. So I don't see much changing um, uh, as a result of a possible change in leadership. Uh, the only thing that's really different is, of course, that Netanyahu and Trump have uh, kind of a bromance going. I mean, these are two guys that know each other. Um, they've got a good relationship. And, of course, of course, Jared Kushner has known Netanyahu for much of his life. So you have this sort of uh, comfort level among senior administration officials with the current um, uh, leadership in Israel. But um, new relationships can be built, uh, especially uh, between two allies when the alliance is based on common values, which this one I think really is. Before we uh, let you get back to all things defense of democracy, Jonathan, I want to ask, what do you think about these reports that uh, Ambassador Bolton has some pretty harsh words about the president's foreign policy behind closed doors. Surprises you? You think he's spot on? What do you make of it? Look, I, I'll say this about Bolton. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of harsh words for a lot of people. That's his style. Um, and so, you know, the question is whether he's going to do what most people do in Washington, which is hold your tongue, um, thank the president for his time, or whether he's going to, to lash out. My sense is that, you know, if, if our foreign policy remains relatively constant, 
Um, you know, Bolton really shouldn't do that. Um, but if, uh, you know, if he if he sees that the president is really shifting wildly from perhaps whatever the course was that they had plotted out, I can imagine that he might see that as kind of the unraveling of the work that he did over these many months. And it's um, still not advisable in Washington. you got to remember the thing is that, you know, long-term relationships are important and uh, reputations are important. But um, like I said, uh, John Bolton has uh, always had these sharp elbows. So um, it wouldn't surprise me. Anything, any thoughts on uh, Robert C. O'Brien as the new national security advisor? We've got about a minute. Yeah, look, um, a professional guy, a capable guy. You know, my question is, and I honestly don't know the answer to this, what is his relationship like with the president? I know they've had some victories in terms of reclaiming uh, Americans held against their will. The question is, will he provide that unvarnished truth? those tough analyses to the tough questions uh, that the president may not want to hear, but probably should. That's what McMaster did. That's what Bolton did. I think that's what any good national security advisor will do. Jonathan Shanzer, everybody. He is at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, what's the website, Jonathan? Uh, FDD.org. FDD.org. Everybody check it out for your national security analysis. Dr. Shanzer, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for giving us your time today. Sure thing. Thanks, Buck. Well, team, we'll uh, get into some lighter fare here in a moment. We'll get into some roll call. I thought I thought we'd bring in Dr. Shanzer, though. He's he's one of the best in the game on this stuff. So I, I thought you'd want to hear from him as well as from me. We'll be back in just a moment. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for roll call. So what did we do yesterday? Did we do, did we do uh, Facebook or did we do emails yesterday? We got Facebook. We, we did fa- Okay, so now we got to get into our emails. Let's see. What, let's see. What we got an, an email world. That's always fun. Uh, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. That is the email address. It is very exciting. We recommend that you uh, you try it out. You'll love it. The emails come to us, and uh, and everyone is happy. So. Here we go, Valerie. I'm always I'm always worried that I'm going to start uh, reading off people's full names, so don't worry. I'll try very hard not to do that. Uh, where did oh whoops? Where did Valerie just go? Okay, Valerie disappeared. But we'll get back to that. It's oh no, here it is. Here it is. She writes. Okay, it's your show. You can take calls if you want, but she wrote in the subject line: "Callers really?" Question mark. I mean, Valerie, I'm just telling you, sometimes people, they write to me, they go, why are you taking callers? Team Buck wants their voice to be heard as voices, not just as thoughts and emails and messages. And I said, all right, fine. But I can tell you that, uh, Producer Mark, did did it seem like folks were all excited about calls yesterday? Because I got some emails, you got some emails. Didn't seem like there was a lot of love for the calls. Yeah, there, there were a lot of anti-call emails. A lot of anti-call honest. emails. And look, this is a, this is not a, this is not a buckocracy. This is more of a a buck uh, buck based constitutional republic, so you know there are rules, and and the rules are if the if the audience if a preponderance of the audience uh, would like it a certain way, we got to make them happy. All right, here we go, James. Good name. Hey, Buck, get off my lawn. 
Uh, I'm sorry for nuking your taking calls last night. Oh, I guess it's James who wrote in. <laughs> all right. My next email will address the three points we talked about. Peace, James. James, it's all good, my man. It's all good. You know, you called in. You had a little spice to the show. We appreciate it. We always appreciate a little spice. Although not too much, because then producer John has to take the Tums. Actually, are you a spicy food guy? Yeah, you are. Hey, he's Italian. He's got a mamma mia with the pomodoro with the... What kind of spices do you use in Italy? I don't even know. Red peppers. Italian Red peppers. Yeah. Spicy. I don't think Italian food is that spicy either, but yeah. there can be like spice, spicy arrabbiata. Is it arrabbiata? Is that what you call it, right? What do you call it? Ara- arrabbiata pasta, right? The sauce? No? I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Buck. John, I, I know. It's like the it's like the old country here. Hold on a second. Arabiata. Yeah. Arabiata sauce. I'm not crazy. It's a thing. Spicy arabiata sauce. It's uh is a simple recipe I make. Here we go. Let's see what it's got here. Uh it has what are we uh uh oh. Now they're, they're Buck they're, Sexton's cooking segment. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I want to do a show called Cooking with Conservatives. I want to do that show. It'd be amazing. But see, the thing is, it'd have to be a very nonchalant, like I'm hanging out with a fellow conservative in a kitchen and we are each drinking our spirit of choice, you know, wine, beer, liquor, whatever it may be. Hopefully, hopefully they'll, they'll be like me and they'll want to just drink something straight because it's good and they don't want to waste, waste the flavor with uh, mixers, you know, like a sorority girl. But uh, that's right. I said it. But, you know, I, I think that uh, we could do this conservative cooking with conservatives i think it'd be a lot of fun and uh i'm trying to see what's i'm trying to see what's in an arabiata sauce here it just keeps telling me about how delicious it is in this recipe so i'll figure it out uh you got butter olive oil crushed red pepper flakes that's the spikes i was looking for that's what i was saying before red peppers yeah you're right you're right right. it's all right don't tell a mama producer a john to give me a a beating over the head the with the rolling pin you know like the old school Right now, the Italian audience is You're like, You're so Buck. stereotyping. I know. Me. I was going to say, right now, the, Itali- the Italian-American segment of the audience is like, Buck, thin ice. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit of thin ice. All right. All right. Here we go. Um, where did we? Where were we? I was doing I was doing roll call, and then I got sidetracked talking about spicy sauces. Uh, all right. Here we go. Uh, more of this. Uh, Lowell writes, I listen to your show because of your version of the day's events. I really like the structure of roll call, the interaction with your listeners' opinions that way. Taking call from people in the middle of the show is what everybody else does. It gets old. I really like everything you're doing to expand your media company. Kudos to producer Mark. Man, everyone just loves producer. You know, producer Mark comes on board. All this fun stuff happens. Sorry, we love you too, producer John. You've been there from the beginning. You're an early investor. Producer John is like a guy that bought Amazon stock when it was $5, you know? I'm a very stable genius. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Producer Mark is like, ooh, he's like the Mark Zuckerberg of the situation. Like, he's, oh, I'm, I'm young, I'm hip, I'm running things. I'm helping you create a media empire. Correct. No, I know. That's why we got to keep you happy. So, uh, all right. Uh, but, to, yeah, Lowell, I, I think that the people, the people have been heard on this one. Uh, here we go. We have Randolph. Randolph. Mortimer. <laughs> I love that movie. If you haven't seen Trading Places, I do think you will enjoy it. I think it's worth, at the, I think it holds up well. I believe it's Eddie Murphy's, and people always say 48 hours, balderdash, malarkey. Uh, Eddie Murphy's second best movie, in my opinion, is 
um, trading places. Coming to America, I put in the numbers. I, I don't. I just don't like Forty Eight Hours that much. I don't know. It wasn't really my thing. Uh, let's see here. Randolph writes. I recently watched an interview with Peter Hitchens in which he said that when he was a revolutionary socialist, they were very much in favor of large scale immigration. Not because they particularly liked immigrants, but because they didn't like Britain. I thought that if they had large numbers of people in Britain from outside of it, it would make the task of changing Britain easier. Need it be said that the Marxists in our own country bear resemblance to their British comrades. Additionally, I've just begun reading the Gulag Archipelago, which should be a must read. I'm in my mid 20s and not once in high school nor in college have I ever had or been encouraged to read the likes of Solzhenitsyn or Dostoevsky or even Orwell. I did, however, have time to read The Handmaid's Tale. Shields High, Randy from Georgia. Randy, first of all, I'm very pleased that uh, you are, uh, hopefully you learned about the Gulag Archipelago from this show, because I've told people to read it, and also I'm a, a constant proponent of, of Orwell and Orwell's works on the show. I was never assigned, it's still, and I went to some, I went to some schools that were not particularly progressive, at least for their time, for grammar school, for high school, uh, college was Commieville for sure, but college everywhere pretty much is Commieville, except for, you know what the exception is? Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College actually teaches the American American founding. It teaches from a perspective of Judeo-Christian values. And the more people I meet from Hillsdale, the more I, impressed I tend to be with what that school is turning out, especially as compared to some of its uh, well-known Ivy League counterparts out there, which are just spitting out lots of, of leftists all the time. So where was I here? Oh, yes. Um, I, I was never assigned uh, Orwell's 1984. I was never assigned 1984 uh, George Orwell in school, which is just astonishing. It's just crazy, uh, given the things that I was. I read a lot of books about Somebody living in a village and the elders wanted to maintain the old ways. But then, you know, somebody came along with like a new tractor or some new technology. But the old ways and like the spirits, you know, there's some, you know, traditional non-Judeo-Christian religious practices thrown in there. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, a lot of that stuff. Not a lot of the uh, of the Orwell, which I, the only book I was actually that's not even true. I read I read Animal Farm on my own. I was never even assigned Animal Farm in school, which is really nuts. Um, never assigned Animal Farm. Never assigned 1984. Never assigned the Gulag Archipelago. Never assigned Crime and Punishment. Never, you know, these are all things that I had to read on my own. I actually might go back and read Gulag Archipelago again. It's been a long time. Uh, let's see here, Dixie. Wow, cool. Dixie was, an, it was the name of my Boston Terrier growing up. Hi, Buck. Just wondering if you've seen, heard the new ad campaign for the Hartford Insurance Company. Always think of you, and it gave me a smile. Um, no, here, what does it say? It's, uh, the Buck starts here with new branding for the Hartford something or other. Oh, that's cool. There's like a Buck in there. Yeah, that's cute. I appreciate that. I used to have this T-shirt that I think it was sold by Urban Outfitters or something, but it, it said uh, "Get Buck Wild," and it had two deer, but with human legs, kind of. So it was really a almost like a centaur, but uh, deer top instead of horse bottom. I guess that that was more complicated explanation than it needed to be. But anyway, and they were dancing. 
You know, like like getting all dancey dance going on. I don't know. That T-shirt fell. I wore that T-shirt so much it fell apart. But it was a conversation starter. Ladies were like, oh, my gosh, your name is Buck? And your T-shirt says, do you want to get Buck Wild? That is, like, so adorbs. And I was like, can I have your phone number? And they're like, nah, sorry. I was like, oh, shot down. It's all right, producer Mark. I say that it, it helped me grow character. Put some hair on your you-know-where. Head. Exactly. Why there's so much hair up there. Needs a haircut. That's also true. That's also true. Um, we haven't gotten to enough enough roll call here. Hold on a second. When we, uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna extend it through so we'll get into more. Hold on, we'll we'll cut right back. We're gonna do a double. We'll do we'll, we'll do two. Not not I'll do one. I'll do two. We'll be right back. All right, and we're continuing with roll call. I decided to do a do a a two for a two for today, and I also wanted to throw in the mix some of our, our Facebook messages. We got a lot of emails coming, a lot of Facebook messages, so I figured why not let's. Let's get that at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's what I, uh, that's how you send us a message. That is, in fact, if you send a message there, it will get to us. So you don't have to send the, is this the roll call? Yes. Yes, it is. If you go to the URL I gave you, I assure you it is, it is for roll call purposes. And if you don't want it read on air, just put not for roll call at the top, please. I feel, I always, I've had like heart attacks. I've seen things a few times. They're like, this is super sensitive. Don't tell anybody. But they read it at the bottom. And I'm like, no, don't do that. We've never gotten that on air. But it has been a thing that I've, I've seen. Because I try to scan them before we get to them. Hmm. Richard. Uh, Buck, there was a survey of police officers published in 2013. It showed that they were overwhelmingly skeptical of gun control measures. It makes sense they'd be skeptical because they see every day the impact of the laws. Here's a link to the article on Police One. I don't know if anything newer exists. Well, thank you so much, Richard. That's very interesting. I mean, look, I, I, I never said, because I just said I don't know. I just was trying to tell you that I have met law enforcement officers who aren't particularly pro-Second Amendment, but I've certainly met a ton of law, enfor- law enforcement officers who are all about the Second Amendment, um, and I just never seen any data on this. And according to this policeone.com website, and this is 15,000 verified law enforcement professionals took part in the survey, it said, quote, do you think a federal ban on the manufacture and sale of, ammu- of ammunition magazines that hold more than 10 rounds would reduce violent crime? 95.7% of law enforcement officers said no. Another question. What do you think a federal ban on the manufacture and sale on semi-automatic firearms, termed by some as assault weapons, would do to reducing violent crime? 6% said moderate. 71% said none. 20% said a negative effect on reducing violent crime. 1% of law enforcement officers, according to this policeone.com site, which has this uh, study. I've never heard of police1.com, so um, this is something new for me, but uh, this is what we got sent on roll call. So there we have it. It looks like overwhelmingly uh, law enforcement, according to this, are pro-Second Amendment, which makes sense to me. I'm just telling you, though, there are, you know, CNN will find all five cops that want to take all your guns away and put them on TV. I promise you. I promise you that. Colton. Uh Buck, the only excuse you need to come down to Texas is barbecue. Colton, I agree, man. I love, I love, actually, I have not had good barbecue in a long time. I have not had good barbecue in a long time. 
All right, producer, producer John, what is the you can only have one thing at a great bar at a great classic Southern barbecue joint. What is your meat of choice? Um, I like pulled pork. Acceptable answer. I put it in top three. Producer Mark, what do you you only get one meat choice, not the five yeah. we usually get there because we go hard in the paint. Of course. Yeah. What do you get? Uh, I guess I have to go with ribs. Also acceptable. Yeah. Also acceptable. Okay. Those are those are two of my top three. For me, number one is brisket. I just I'm a brisket fanatic. I think that brisket, when it's done right, is the most delicious uh you know, meat that there is. So, That's my number two. What's up? That's my number two. Oh, you go number two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just sometimes I talk to people and they're just like, I like the roast chicken. I'm like, you go to a barbecue place for the roast chicken? What are you? Some kind That's of insane. a some kind of a communist? It's it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, Nathan writes about rifles of that distinction. You could call them tactical rifles, but given that they feel they fall under the '94 assault weapon ban, they're rifles that are assault weapons. As dumb as it sounds, the precedence is set. Yeah, Nathan, that's what I'm saying. I mean, if you know, if somebody classifies all rifles with a detachable magazine, a, a foregrip, and a rail system as an assault rifle in law. Then when you refer to assault rifles, that's what you are referring to. So, you know, we can I understand there's no firearms designation, but we're talking about law and legal policy. You know, yeah, I mean, we can do shorthand stuff or we can rename things like with the Affordable Care Act. We can call it Obamacare. But technically, if I want to pull up the the bill, I do a search. I do a search for the Affordable Care Act. I don't do a search for Obamacare. Right. Because that's not what it's called. Technically. You know, you're already like, boo. Boo, Obamacare. Ah, good times, good times. Douglas. Oh, wait. Sorry, Douglas. We'll get to you tomorrow. Guys, don't forget, tomorrow at 7 o'clock at the Women's National Republican Club in Midtown Manhattan, I will be giving a speech on wartime conservatism, 7 p.m. Eastern. Please, please come check it out. With a more team buck that shows up, the merrier. I will stay after the speech. I will drink alcohol. I will tell stories. I will hang out. We will take selfies. I want selfies of you. It'll be amazing. Let's go for it. Show up tomorrow. Women's National Republican Club. Um, I could even tell you the address if I had it pulled up right here. But I, it's like 50, 52nd Street or something and uh, between 5th and 6th, I think. But So it's right in midtown Manhattan. If you're in New York City, Team Buck, come on out. Come on out. Check it out. Shields high.